Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald Interviews. I'm Dave Busey, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today I'm joined by Stephen Frank to talk Palomino Silver Comics work and a career in animation on works like The Iron Giant and recently Marvel Studios' What If. We're going to talk primarily about Palomino today. It's a neo-noir graphic novel series set in the lost culture of L.A.'s country music clubs. It inspired me to binge Graham Parsons for about a week straight. So thank you for that, Stefan. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Um, what was what was your primary, uh, what were your go-tos while you were working on this? Like, what were the albums you were listening to the most? Well, you know, it's funny because, like, the albums that I, I really fell in love with as a kid were really, like, the inspiration of the, the concept of trying to do something around the, you know, with the Palomino Club, which was a real place um, as a backdrop. Um you know, like I, I fell in love with uh, West Coast country rock. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, and yeah. uh, you know, Emil Harris. You know, you're mentioning Grand Parsons and all that stuff. Tracks back to the Palomino. So I was, you know, like you know, listening to those albums when I was a kid. And you know, back then you you, you didn't have the internet. You you had just the liner notes, and you would like kind of parse. You know, and, and like a lot of those albums mentioned the Palomino. Some of them were recorded live over there, like Emil Harris had one, you know, uh, you know, Jerry Lewis, um, mm. also. so, you know, a lot of that was really like the, some early fascination with the place and its lore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And no, it's cool. Cause you don't see this particular music scene a lot, uh, associated with LA, LA, at least in media oftentimes, right. You maybe get, um, the underground punk scenes, you know, I think have gotten a lot of attention, uh, in recent years, um, and then of course, just the Hollywood glitz and glamour, right, is always a go-to in in media. But it is fun to see these these country clubs and how big they are. I was pretty fascinated. I mean, we'll talk about the graphic novel, of course. It's, it's this noir, yeah. and we're we're going to focus on that. Um, but at the end of it, you know, at the, at the end of the Kickstarter package, which is, I think you just went over your goal. So, like, first off, congratulations. I, I checked this morning. You're like a hundred dollars over, um, with with several days left. So so yeah, we'll yeah. include links to all that fun stuff in the show notes, of course. Um, but at the end of it, you have interviews with like former Palomino players. Um, you got to talk to them about, you know, their days in the club. Uh, how how essential was that to kind of your your research? And I guess how you know what did you what were some favorite stories? Yeah, so it, it ended up being um, more like lived in than researched in the sense that I've been playing the clubs myself, you know, since I was a teenager. Sure. And yeah. So all those guys. Uh, um, became friends and ended up working with them in other clubs after the Palomino because the Palomino was already closed by the time I, I came to LA. Mm -hmm. But so it, it's um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but it, it was really because uh, th there is a slice of music history of California history, but just altogether music history because California was such a crossroads of all sorts of musics. Of music, yeah, that of music that you know, range from the '40s to the to the '80s, you know, um, and um, and so so really, it, what's very interesting is when you talk to all those musicians, uh, uh, some of them are you know come from the Central Valley, you know, which is you know if you don't know California, it's that that agricultural valley in between San Francisco and uh, and Los Angeles, and which was where like the Oki migrations of the of the early, you know, like the Grapes of Wrath kind of thing, you know, came, you know, and then their children came to the LA basin and they brought all that culture, right? And so this is where you have uh, 
you know, LA was such a country music town, you know, in the second half of the 20th century. So some of those musicians come straight from that culture. Others were like people from the East Coast, you know, who were like trying, you know, just looking to go to one of the big music centers of the era. And they came here. And, and um, you know, the thing they used to say in those days is, you know, um, you know, rock bands rehearse all the time, but they never work. And country mm. men never rehearse, but they work six nights a week, right? Mm. And, and so, and they get drawn into that music scene of the time, which really was based in the clubs. And and it's it's very interesting too, on a kind of societal kind of level, because, uh, you know, being a working musician in the 70s and 80s, and even before that, but, the, you know, definitely in, in those eras, um, was a thing you could work at a club uh, like the palomino being the house band work there six nights a week and make a good you know middle class living and raise a family buy a house you know in los angeles which of course uh um has that is not the case anymore that this stuff doesn't exist anymore yeah. so like i you know when you're telling a story that takes place in the early 80s and with a working musician in la it's like the canary in the coal mine for what happened to the American middle class in the last 30 years. So there's a lot of very deep and very real uh, uh, sort of background uh, um, and undercurrents to a scene that is otherwise is super fun. Um, and, and that um, you've you, and you've seen the Palomino in places in movies like Every Which Way But Loose or Hooper and stuff like that. But it was never really associated with the the other great LA tradition of the noir mystery, you know, so just yeah. two together. Yeah, very cool. So, yeah, I mean, so the lead character in Palomino, the first volume you kickstarted um, a couple years back, and what's what's being kickstarted right now are volumes two and three. And our lead character is an ex-cop, they're a PI, and then, yeah, like you said, like they're also a working musician who plays, um, I think, the pedal steel guitar. That's right. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, at, at nights in the Palomino Club, and all these things kind of intersect. Um, we open with, of course, you know, there's a murder and a mystery and classic kind of noir setup. Um, and then it very much becomes the story of, of this man and his daughter kind of trying to puzzle these mysteries together as everything intersects. Um, you know, you've, you've had this, this fascinating career as an animator first um, and then kind of coming in with comics in, in the more recent years with books like Silver and, mm. and now Palomino. Um, how long have these stories the comic story has been in the making are these things that you're noodling on for years and years prior yeah that's that's it's it's interesting yeah because you know there's a lot of concepts that i've had for a long time like for mm -hmm. instance palomino for 20 years i knew i wanted to do a noir story like you know around the palomino and the, the music scene and stuff but so they just kind of turn around in my head in the you know on the back burner until I found like my, but what's the story really about? Like, what's the real human angle? You know, and once I get I get this, then it just becomes I just become obsessed, and then that that becomes like the front you know project, and I, and I jump yeah. on. It. And for Palomino, uh, the thing was, as you mentioned, was the father daughter relationship, um, which is that um, you know, it's uh, uh, you know. It's, it happened at a time where my youngest daughter, my youngest kid, uh, uh, um, who happens to be a daughter, I have two daughters and one son, um, but was graduating college. And so I felt like, oh my God, a page is turning in my life. The whole chapter on parenthood or at least parenting kids, you know, that, that, that thing's over. And it made me mm -hmm. 
and that triggers something. And and in, in this one moment, I saw this one scene between you know Eddie and his daughter, a daughter, which at that point was not written into the story yet. And I, I could see their relationship, uh, and especially the scene came alive when she responded because she has such a unique voice. Because he's a hard-boiled kind of Clint Eastwood, Steve McQueen kind of badass character, right? But she's a teenager. She's almost has more, you know, almost more hard-boiled than he is, you know. So the two yeah. together have this rapport. And once I had that way into the story, that I knew what it was. And so, like for all my stories, it's that way, you know. I have the concept; it may be there for a while, and then one day suddenly, like a door opens on what's the real human angle? What does it really mean, you know? And boom, then then, then I go. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. With um, you know, it's it's a pretty personal story, right? As far as your own relationship with your daughter and your your writing fictional characters, of course, but obviously you're writing trying to find something true, right? In your own experience, yeah. um, with your daughter, do you do you worry when you're writing this character, like like to try not to make them too similar? Like, do you know, do you, do you worry about like I don't want her to think that's that's what I think of her? Like, how do you balance that aspect of it? Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny. There, there's definitely, well, I think any authorship, uh, uh, and I'm not a songwriter myself, but I always feel that way about people writing. So it's so naked, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, in this case, just to be clear, <laughs> my daughters are not, it's not, auto, you know, we don't have any crime stories in our lives and they're, you know, yeah. all of that. It's just that there's a certain spirit, a certain, both my daughters are extremely kind of very strong people, very badass, you know. And, and so, the, this feeling of people like, and especially when the kids, because when they're young, very young, you, you just, just support, support, support. And, and and then at some point, you also, like the need to keep it real comes in and, and then they keep you in check and they keep it real for you. So this mm-hmm. relationship of two very strong people who have each other's back no matter what, but at the same time, they're always going to keep each other in check and make sure that they, they keep it real and don't spin out of control. Uh, 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 I think that's th- that's the nature of the relationship I really wanted to uh, explore. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. No, it's definitely. I think it's the thing that stands out because you know there's a lot of good noir in in media, obviously, but in comics specifically, um, it's a yeah. it's a very popular genre. Uh, but definitely the the father-daughter dynamics as they both, you know, because the daughter too, as the story progresses, yeah. not to spo- I won't spoil anything, but I, like she kind of starts to do similar sorts of, of research and investigation and finding herself in, yeah, yeah. you know, these these uncomfortable situations like the protagonist of, yeah, yeah. of a classic noir story. Um, so so you get both dynamics and you kind of see them playing out in parallel, which is cool because it's a it's a it's a different it's a different take than just your solo. Humphrey Bogart, right, right. going in and, right. and figuring things out. Right. Um, what else? What else was important to you? You know, in doing neo noir, setting it in L.A. Like, how, like, what else was essential to you in terms of making it stand out? Uh, it was really capturing the the texture of living in L.A. and specifically mm-hmm. in the Valley, because we've seen a lot of you know, as you said there, you know, there's a lot of noir stories, classic noir stories in L.A., but it's always you know like. A, you know, City Hall, you know, the Hollywood sign, you know, Sunset Boulevard, you know, Mulholland yeah. Drive. I mean, we've seen the, those landmarks and they're great. But, you know, at this point, it can very, you know, it's, it's we've seen this and it's, it, it becomes almost touristy at this point. And I really wanted to hit more like the, you no, know, if you live here, 
like the deeper cut, you know, locations and the city becomes a character this way. Versus there's this location called, uh, this a place, a real place here called Sunland, you know, and this is where, you know, Eileen and, and you know, it has this kind of nefarious kind of meeting, you know, and her bodyguard is like, oh, do you want to meet there <laughs> in Sunland, ready? Because this, the thing is, and especially that road, uh, uh, it's a specific road, uh, uh, Topanga, uh, not Topanga, uh, um, Latuna Canyon Road, uh, uh, where uh, this used to be a spot that was known in, you know, decades ago to be a place where you dumped bodies you know whether they were dumped there by the mob or by a serial killer once in a while so when you reference sunland you know it's like all of a sudden it's you know so that's that's one thing or silmar where he lives with his daughter that's also a suburb here uh uh, where a lot of music it's a blue collar suburb where a lot of musicians uh working musicians used to used to live uh you know so it's a real place it's got a real vibe you know so i always feel like as a reader you may not know the specifics of a place of a time or whatever but the truth you you know truth when you see it you know it's truth Mm. storytelling you know and 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 so i was really trying to bring the texture of life in the city to life and to where it does become its own character with its own voice and its own presence you know yeah yeah no it's interesting i mean i think you know so you're writing and drawing everything um as you've done with your comics work and uh you can see i think as palomino progresses your style you seem more comfortable with with different elements of comics um for example like double page spreads uh like in the first volume they're virtually none um and now you seem increasingly comfortable like okay like let's let's flatten this out let's explore like a wider shot and you know limited text um what what other areas do you find yourself as you do more comics like do you find yourself wanting to do more kind of different layouts tricks of the craft uh what what is what are you seeing progress in your own art as you move forward in this i i, I think it's um i think it really depends on the series uh, uh for so well typically i like to bring in the big double page spreads uh uh you know in the what I would say on the B side of the second act, you know, which is mm-hmm. like when the big stuff happens, you know? Um, and I think double page spreads are really awesome in terms because they serve two function. Uh, um, on the one hand, like a traditional way to use them, <coughs> excuse me, a traditional way to use them um, in modern comics is really to compress a trope. Like for instance, when you you you, you read like Watchmen, right? And, and, yeah. and there's uh, a lot of the the storytelling is sometimes decompressed, where Rorschach takes nine panels to get to somebody, you know. Yeah. But you know, in one single page, one spread, you know, one image, um, you understand everything you need to understand about Doctor Manhattan's involvement in the in the Vietnam War. You know, it's all oh, sure. you know. And so I think. Sometimes when you have something that is a very powerful trope that you want to hit very strongly, but at the same time, it's not the play-by-play of the story that's important, and it's something that we already have a the the reader already has a shorthand with, because you know, then you do it as a really kick-ass, you know, full page, which mm-hmm. gives you a chance to add some, uh, you know, interesting details that make it, you know. Uh, 
cool and, and, and unique and stuff. But at the same time, so you get the food, you hit the trope in a way that's really satisfying. And at the same time, you don't be labor story, story points that are well understood. Right. So, so there's yeah. that. Uh, but then uh, I also like to use it in a way that I don't see too, and you know, maybe some of this has to do with the fact that because I'm also, uh, I publish those books, you know, through Dark Planet Comics myself. So I, I can do whatever I want. And so, you know, yeah. page count, if I want to explode it, I explode it, you know? And I think there's something that you never see in comics for that reason is using a fast succession of double page spreads. I mean, you do yeah. see it again, I'm going, always going back to Watchmen, you kind of see it at the, you know, at the end when the, like the big squid thing happens and you have this series of, and I guess that thing made an impression to me where uh, um, it, it's, uh, uh, I, I th you know, th there's a certain impact to it, to do it like you would do like a fast succession of panel, except it's a fast succession of full pages, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I just think this is something I just love. That's interesting. Yeah, no, and it's definitely, I mean, certainly an advantage of, you know, your, your own publisher here is you don't have, you know, the, the rigors and the structure of, okay, we have 22 pages and it comes out every two weeks or whatever, right? Like, and right. It's, you know, and it's as a, as a market, it can be like, okay, if you do six double page spreads in a row, <laughs> like, what does that mean for page count? What does that mean for page yeah. turn ads? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, obviously does not get in the way, which is, yeah, it is, it's, it's an interesting tool, I think, to use here in a book that is, I think, you know, Palomino, the structure definitely lends itself to generally more decompressed storytelling. You know, it, it's pretty grounded. It's pretty realistic right. following the literal paces of, of what these, you know, PIs are going through. Um, what were, what for you in these, in these most recent volumes that are being kickstarted now, what were the hardest scenes to, to write or to, to visualize? I think there's uh, um, the there, there's a scene at the end which I can't spoil obviously because it's the last scene of the the third volume, right? But but yeah. you know which is a big action scene that takes place in this confined and yet very specific um, uh, space. And so you know what I did for and so so you know keeping the the clarity. Of this of the space where you are in the space because there's a little bit of a game of cat and maths mouse so you need to really like the reader you can't lose and be generically kind of situated you know you need to know exactly where the characters are so otherwise yeah. the suspense doesn't play the same way and, and so uh um so i i build a cg set for this uh, uh for I, I build cg sets for uh, the most important location so i could like really kind of find my shots uh, uh, and really control the storytelling and its consistency, but also uh, in finding shots that are just uh, outside what would be my normal bag of trick if I was just kind of sketching it out, you know. Um, and, and so just that was definitely a challenging sequence, uh, um, again, in terms of its pacing, its intensity, the suspense and making sure everything was entirely clear and you knew exactly where the character, you know, who's where and who knows what, you know, and when, you know, and all that stuff. So that, that was really, that was really, um, challenging and really exciting piece of storytelling to tackle. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I, you talk about building the CG sets, which I, I think is interesting, you know, cause it's, I think it, um, it helps sort of 
clarify the the blurred line between animation and comics mm. and how there's there's a lot of similarity here in the styles and storytelling and and just natural overlap in so many ways which is why i think you know generally speaking fans of comics are big fans of animation as well um what uh what for you did you find to be the biggest difference as you've been doing more and more comics uh, i think that like the the biggest difference i would say from the at least the way I'm doing it is uh, um, was from the when I just started, which was there's an, there needs to be an uh, beyond the storytelling and the sequential of it, which is the part that is is easier for me. Um, there's an illustrative quality to comics that of course is not in animation because in you know animation is more ephemeral uh, in the sense that you're an animator, you know, your drawing is only on screen for like a fraction of a second, you know? So there's other challenges cause you need to, uh, to create the believability of movement, be very specific with the emotion. I mean, to the frame and stuff like that. So there's a lot of other challenges, but there can be a certain forgive, is it forgive, forgiving, forgivingness to yeah. the, um, to the, um, to the drawing itself in the sense that, you know, either you do storyboards and the audience will never see them or you're doing animation. And, and again, the frames go by so fast that you get more general impression in time, as opposed to like the, all the weight being on one single illustrative drawing, but comics is different because you have this one page and it's here and it sits here forever. People can, you know, look at it as long as they want, you know, it can turn into a, something that goes on somebody's wall and whatever. Right. So yeah. like the, there's a need to kind of formalize the art in a way that is different. And, and that was, cause that was not my training to start with. So, so that was, I would say my, my learning curve at the very beginning. Yeah. That's interesting. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Each, each page becomes its own potential framed poster right. right if you if you want it to be so there's i there was an there's an article you wrote for um 13th dimension which i really like uh which I'll, I'll link here as well that people should check out and you talk about the uh the approaches to visual storytelling yeah. and one of the one of the things that I've, I've found myself thinking about a lot since i've read it is basically trying each page has a standout panel and each panel has like a standout moment, you know, kind of like that sort of just thinking, uh, which is really interesting. I think visual just sort of e like just as criticism, right? Because I read a lot of reviews and just talking about comics. Um, it's an interesting way to approach like, okay, what is the what is the artist looking to do on this page? Like, where's the standout panel? What's the standout moment? Um, and, and thinking, does it have that? Because then if you find, find a page where it's like, I have no idea, like that's a problem, right? right? And you can criticize right, it right. on those terms. Um, you wrote that in 2018, that, that kind of guide to visual storytelling. Uh, has anything changed in your approach since then? Where, you know, five years later, is there something that's like, oh, this thing is, is more important to me now? Um, the, no, I mean, like the, the, this, this, is, this was always really important to me. Uh, um, you know, it's something that I just heard, I mean, I read because I never met him, but I, I you know, uh, Frank Frazetta said about painting, right? Yeah. That every painting only needs one killer detail that clinches it if you have too many of those you know it, it gets unnecessary and busy and it becomes sort of you're breaking some sort of aesthetic distance you know and uh, um and if it's missing then it's bland and generic and i feel like yes as you said that that applies to uh to comic book pages um and the thing that i always loved about the we're talking about the you know classic you know a few years ago 
uh, I went to, uh, um, they had a beautiful Jack Kirby exhibit um, here uh, in LA. And, and I mean, you see there was, they literally had hundreds and hundreds of original pages, you know, that were just incredibly beautiful. But what was really striking is that you look at one page, oh, oh, it's that page. I saw it one in the book I read when I was 10 years old, but it is a bell that cannot be unrang. You know, it's just like, it's mm. one singular image. Um, and the thing that I'm, you know, sometimes, uh, especially when you, tr when people try to make the book cinematic and stuff like that, quote unquote cinematic, um, it, it ends up being, there's a sameness to the panels and, you know, and I wouldn't yeah. want to do a book where, you know, if by mistake you were to drop the pages, you wouldn't know which one is which and it'd be hard because they all kind of sort of look the same and stuff like that. So yeah. what I'm really trying to do is um, do that thing, that classic thing where each page, you don't know that, I mean, there's some pages are better than others, stronger than others, whatever, you know, it's, that would always, you know, be the case, but that at least in intention, every page is a unique art object, you know, that it, yeah. it, in its presentation and it's what element is featured, there's a choice, there's a commitment to a certain graphic element in it that really stands out so that the page mm -hmm. is really absolutely unique. Again, may not be my best page, but at least it is that page and trying to merge that with a sort of film language approach where at the same time, uh, I'm just trying to bring a clarity of storytelling to it, you know, uh, that comes from film language that so that the panels at the same time also cut from one to the next, like, like shots cut in the film, you know, that there's no visual yeah. repetition that you, you don't cut to something from one thing to almost the same thing. You don't do that. You cut to something completely different or something or for, for, with enough of a difference that it doesn't feel like a mushy kind of move. Right. So, um, it's just trying to commit to all these aspects to, to create something that is immersive, uh, um, that has the qualities that you would have in, in a movie in the sense of how um, the clarity and the effectiveness of it. And also that pays tradition to what I love in comics, which is this uniqueness of every page. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I really like that approach. It's it's very interesting to consider, and and again, just as a fan, it's interesting to think about. Okay, what's what is each individual page doing? Is it pulling that off? Um, yeah. So okay, so Palomino, we're gonna have links here in the show notes. Um, make sure people can check that out. Again, as a as a fan of both noir and some of the the country artists you're talking about, it's a fun overlap. Um, it's it's a pretty good time. It, it definitely is. So is Silver, uh, frankly, which is a Dracula heist. Um, it's a very compelling hook of a book. Uh, you know, you have your, your classic heist kind of story, but mixed in with the classic Bram Stoker's Dracula narrative and the Van Helsings yeah. and the Harkers and all that good stuff. Um, what what kind of kicked off your desire to tell that particular story? Um, yes, Silver, which was my my first professionally done comic after, as you said, many years in animation, um, was, it came from a fascinating, I think it all, everything comes from things that you see as a kid and kind of fascinate you. Right. And, and when I was a kid, I grew up in France, uh, and as you can hear probably, <laughs> cause I do have a franchise, uh, but, um, 
we had this TV show on Friday night, like super late, uh, called Midnight Cinema, and which I was watching. It was like after it was almost like you know the the, the forbidden fruit kind of thing. Since I had school on Sunday morning, believe it or not, and, and so, um, but they had black and white movies of the 1930s, 40s, and it was a mix of. You know, you had your masterpiece, your Fritz Lang, Orson Welles, all that stuff. But you also had your B-movie, your monster movies, all that stuff. Detective, you know, screwball comedies like the Thin Man series, all that stuff. And in my mind, I, because they were all presented and curated through this show, uh, you know, it, it, create, it created what I, I think of as a, a meta world of pulp, if you will, right? Where okay, it, yeah. it's it's a mysterious world. It's definitely a world pre Google Map, where the world is full of mystery, and it's in black and white. And you can be in New York with gangsters, you know, and con men, and then take a boat, and now you are chased by werewolves in England, and then you can take like a plane, and then you you're looking for a lost city in somewhere, right? And so. The, the, that sort of world is the world of silver that that I really wanted to you know explore, and the the fun of it was this kind of high concept as your you know is kind of Ocean's Eleven in Dracula's Castle you know I've heard it yeah. <laughs> said by some people where it, it, it's like um, you on the thematic level right you take con man and they're kind of soulless. You know, I mean, how many times you hear in real life people being sort of taken by con men and, you, you know, people say vampires, right? So you have these people who have figuratively no soul. And then you have the vampires, which in silver are really soulless. They are not elevated creatures. They're really like the dead trying to feel alive. You know, that's basically what yeah. it is, you know? And, and so you clash the two together and this is ripe for a really cool redemption story. You know, who's going to be, you know, who, who's going to figure out, you know, it's people basically who suck at life, no pun intended, they suck at life. <laughs> they're great at what they do, whether they're, you know, walking the earth for 5,000 years or whether they're like the best con men in the world. They're great at what they do, but they suck at life and they're running out of chances to sort of get it right, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good read. I recommend people check that out. That one is out. Um, I think there's a nice hardcover that Abrams put together yes. that, that folks can check out. Um, but there are some digital options as well. Uh, very cool. And then the one other book that I read of yours that I, I enjoyed was a webcomic you did. It started during the pandemic, oh, yeah. uh, Romance in the Age of the Space Guys, yes. which is which I really enjoyed. Um, I, I just read the first, you know, the first part, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's this anthropomorphic mice um living through this i mean it's very clearly a, a pandemic yeah, yeah. work i think in terms of the the metaphor of it all and and the president you know yeah. specifically um but it's you know it's these mice and then it's also like oh the space god showed up and it's just there and it's just not doing anything and we're all living in that shadow um where where's that work at like is that something you keep noodling on or, or where's yeah yeah i know it's 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 like uh, um it might be my next thing. Like, uh, I have to do one more volume of Palomino to finish the story, which I'm, volume four is going to be, like, insane. So I'm ready to yeah. jump into that. And then I think the next thing will be the full version of Romance in the Age of the Space God, which, uh, cool. because that, that's something that it's, it's almost, it's a, uh, you know, it's just, a, it's a scream, right? It's just like it was 2020, yeah. we were all stuck at home and everything was, 
um, I, and I had this, you know, like, like the election was looming, you know, or, I mean, I, I, I wrote this and drew it uh, in the, and, and this is the, the, the first comic that I didn't do a script for. I just went straight ahead, just roughing it out, writing it as I was drawing it, you know. Uh, um, and so, you know, it was the pandemic, the 2020 election was looming, you know, who knew what was going to happen, you know. And it, it was based on this idea that um, you think, you know, there's certain things that you think like if they would, they were to happen, the world would stop turning. You know what I mean? Like people, like you would read mm-hmm. differently. And then you realize that no, the craziest stuff happened and the world keeps on turning in its weird way and people adapt in their weird way. You know, we've seen yeah. it. And because you kind of, I mean, for me, you know, I'm old enough to remember the pre 9-11 world, you know, which felt normal to me. It was the the world that I grew up in and thought that was the tracks we were on. And then 9-11 had happened. And all of a sudden, it was one crazy thing after another, right? Like uh, it was the stuff of sci-fi movie, the stuff of crazy dystopia, you know, it just happens, right? Like, you know, Uh, um, and, um, and yet, people, you know, like he's still looking for romance and still, you know, it's just, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. life, life. It, it's like a little flower through concrete it needs to go and needs to make sense of it. And even if the world doesn't make sense, people's lives still have to go on. And, and so I think that was kind of like the, the feeling I was developing around the pandemic, you know, uh, um, yeah. at a time where we thought that our groceries were going to kill us if we touched the bag, you, you know what I'm saying? Uh, right. um, so, and, and also it, it came from the fact that, it, uh, but it's not a dark thing. It, it's a little bit more optimistic than that in the sense that I feel like for every time that old people thought that that's it, it's the end of the world, you know what I mean? Uh, young people go like, Hey, wait, wait a minute. I still have a life to live and, and make sense. And I still need to find meaning and a way in in a broken world so i think um that's 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 really what it is you know it, it is uh, um, life trying to find meaning in a world that you could consider broken or incomprehensible yeah yeah no it's it's a it's a great read there, there's a wilco lyric that i like that you just made me think of which is um every generation thinks it's the last oh, yeah. thinks it's the end of the world and and I, I think about that a fair amount, but it's yeah, it is for the heaviness that it's dealing with, right? In the time in which it's written, um, it's a very captivating, fast-paced, uh, thrilling kind of read. Like it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't read heavy, which I think is you know a, a testament to being able to translate some of those emotions in in a positive way. Which is why I, I drew it with like this world where it's like little mice, you know. <laughs> It probably helps. Yeah, it probably helps. <laughs> it's, you know, the, the first movie, you know, the thing, because um, I used to be a 2D animator before everything became CG and became, I moved on to, you know, directing and all that stuff. But, but the, I, my training is character animation. And the first movie I worked on after school was Firewall Goes West, an American Tale. Okay. And, yeah. you know, we used to say in those days, you know, you can't draw the character during the entire movie. And finally, when the movie's done, that's when you know how to draw them. But it's too late. So like for, you know, 
30 years I've been like looking for a way to finally draw these characters correctly that <laughs> so, found its way to this I, I also wanted to because also it's about a weird world a weird world and like the strangeness of everything I wanted this thing to be a um, a uh, a cognitive dissonance of a book yeah you know where you have characters that are drawn super appealing and they're little you know mice and yet they're dressed like little hipsters and it's a world where you have SWAT team and people getting shot in the head by snipers and there's aliens in the sky you know it's just it's just um it's a, it's a, yeah it's it's on <laughs> definitely definitely well, that one people can check out the the first act on your website right now um for free i think which is which is cool uh yeah we put it um because it was during the pandemic and it was just like what can we do that you know that's fun you know and so uh, so the book exists in full pages form, and that will be published at some point, uh, probably when I do the, the, the following uh, sections. Yeah. But uh, we put it on the website, on the Dark Planet Comics uh, website, in the sort of like, um, you know, uh, scroll, scrolly, scrolly kind of format, mm -hmm. so you can see the the, the panels that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, and it reads pretty smoothly. Um, but no, I look forward to seeing that when it's uh, when it's all together. That'll be That'll be a joy. Um, okay, cool. And then, so the other thing we got to ask about is, uh, so you were, you know, directing and supervising on Marvel's What If. Uh, the first season mm -hmm. is complete, and, and a lot of folks dug it. Uh, any status on next steps? What's your involvement? Uh, any of that stuff? I, all I can say is I'm directing some of the new episodes, but that's literally all. I, and that they are really awesome. Yeah. That that I can wait for people to see what we're doing. But that's anything. I can't say anything else. On any sure. level. <laughs> what's um from season one? What's like? What's the stuff that you're proudest of? What's the stuff that you you're happiest with? You know, my favorite episode uh, is. Uh, I mean, of course, Peggy Carter is is awesome. You know, uh, uh, of course, like the Doctor Strange episode is really like super compelling and stuff like that. But I, I my favorite it's the penultimate one. Uh, uh, so like the first part to the the finale. You know, the part. Yeah, yeah. with Ultron and. One with, um, but for me, you know, it's the one with uh, Widow and Barton in the in the bunker, yeah. you know, because I, it's like we had uh, a bunch of time to really explore the texture of their friendship there, which I think um, even in the the big movies, right? You, there's not always the time to 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 to, to go no. there, and and because there's so much that's happening and stuff, and, and, and so it gave a little lifted the veil on the, the friendship the, the, the relationship between those two characters that I thought was really compelling to yeah. me and I, that's, that's I think there's a, a really special magic to that episode in my in my yeah oh, that's a good pick no I, I like that I like that setup of because yeah you're right in the in the big MCU movies I mean Clint and Natasha are always you know they're they're behind the the big tier kind of players and that you don't get as much character development necessarily um, so that one definitely works was it is it <sighs> Is it hard working on those episodes in terms of the the notes and kind of the the structure and the and the you know the rigors of being like okay this is MCU it has to fit a certain template or do you have a fair amount of freedom to you know once you have the the script to just run with it? No, I have to say the uh, the it, it's been great working with the studio like the you know they definitely <clears throat> but when I, when I started there it was like four years ago now or three four years ago. Um, you know, they already, at that point, they already done at least 20 movies, yeah. you know, 
and even more since then. And so you're talking about a group of filmmakers who really know their characters, they really know their world and stuff like that. So it was, I would say, actually one of the easiest experiences of my life, of my career uh, in animation in terms of working for a studio who's in full, uh, um, how can I say, uh, f- f- fully dialed in to to what they're doing and they're really knowing it really well. And so, like, I would say the challenge was more like the intimidation factor on my side, yeah. you know, where I was like, okay, I've known these characters from since I was a kid, you know, but obviously this is their own version, you know, now. And also, like, am I, you know, am I doing this right? You know, so I, I think... That they were, like the accomplishment of building the MCU was so so massive and impressive that for me there was definitely a little bit of like a <laughs> I don't want to say imposter syndrome because it would be too strong but but just definitely an anxiety of like okay I gotta you know gotta you know gotta deliver yeah. uh, um, and you know and, and and it's true it's such a wide universe that there's so much to know and but then you realize you do realize like, yeah, but you know, I do know these characters. I've known these characters since I was eight years old. I got this, yeah. you know, uh, but it takes a while to, to just kind of relax, you know? And you're growing up, your parents owned like a kind of comic book store, <laughs> Is that, right? That's like, right. So were there, were there like books that you like, what are the ones that you picked up? You know, maybe some Jack Kirby or something like, what were the ones that just absolutely like burned a, a image in your brain? I have to say it was all of them, uh, uh, but um, if I was going to single out some stuff, Jack Kirby for yeah. sure, because just the the, the power, uh, um, the, the, you know, and it's funny like going into animation, right? It a lot of it has to do with really capturing the energy of a moment, specifically the energy of a moment, and I think sometimes in comics you understand what's happening, but it's not always that the artist is able to capture like you really feel the energy right and, and kirby just just it was incredible just like every bomb every page was like an atomic bomb going yeah. off you know whether it was emotionally or the action or or even the world so kirby for sure um uh, another uh, like one of the so the store was great i loved hanging at the store but the thing one thing i loved even more was going to the distributor's warehouse with my with my mm-hmm. mom and while she would like do her business and stuff, I, I'd be, I, I'd just hang out and open some crates and find some, some books that it was like, wait, what is this? Yeah. You know? And that's how I found the spirit. Oh, right? cool. There was those gorgeous um, French edition of the spirits in big format, beautiful, like, you know, newspaper size, uh, beautiful black and white and stuff. And I was like, Oh my God, what is this? And that, that became really my favorite thing for a while. Um, the, of course, I, I read all the, all the French comics, which, uh, you know, uh, here on the Smurfs, I ended up directing a Smurfs uh, um, feature ad for Sony, which was fun because that was also something from my childhood that was, uh, you know, yeah. but a lot of those series, you know, Asterix, you know, uh, Tintin, Lucky Luke, you know, uh, um, and a bunch of more obscure stuff that people don't know, but some great French, com- Belgian actually comics from the um the 70s um and and then like heavy metal but the french not so much i have actually never 
read the American heavy metal, sure. you know, but the, the French Metal Hurlant, right, which was the original thing, which had a, uh, it was only coming out once every three months or something like that. But, it, you know, it had, uh, um, you know, the Moebius, Trouillet, you know, all the French sci-fi stuff. But it also had Corbin, it had uh, uh, Sterenko, mm-hmm. it had all the you know, uh, the Neil Adams, like the indie stuff that he did in the, in the eighties and stuff. So, um, you know, that became the sort of the, the cauldron for me. Yeah. No, that sounds like a, a pretty cool mix <laughs> to grow up on. It definitely, definitely would shift yeah, like was... the best possible artistic sensibilities to grow out of. Um, very cool. Very cool. So, all right. So we've talked about, I think, virtually everything. What what comes next? What do you want to make sure people know about? Um, obviously, the Kickstarter will include a link, but anything else? Um, no, no. Uh, that, that That's about it, right? Like the, the Kickstarter, the thing I would say about the Kickstarter is because people have asked me a lot uh, uh, because it's uh, for volume two and three, but volume one is also available mm. through the Kickstarter uh, so that... Uh, there's you know no fear you can get it there we're also we're also offering the those beautiful uh, hardcovers of silver through the kickstarter uh um and and also rosalyn which uh oh that's another cool one Mm. rosalyn is is a prequel to silver um because you know there's rosalyn van helsing is the vampire hunter in silver that uh, the con men team up with to to, you know to to rob uh, dracula's castle and um, and Rosalind is her diary as a uh, it's it's a childhood diary. So it's all so it doesn't read like a regular comic. It's a very unique kind of graphic novel e book in a certain way. I think it's more in the tradition of things like a contract with God. Talk about Will Eisner and mm, stuff like that. In the sense that it's illustration and text, and the text is first person. It's uh, it's fragments of memory and stuff like that. So the story, when you read it, is actually very well structured and it does read extremely linearly. But the presentation of it is uh, is very different and immerses you in a, in its own very way. And because it's seen from the so it's a very gritty story. It's more on the horror side, whereas Silver is a big pulp adventure. So it's more like an Indiana Jones kind yeah. of thing, you know. Um, but Rosalind is more like on the horror side. And so it's gritty, but it's also seen and processed through the eyes and recollections of a child. So there's an innocence filter to it that, that just makes the, the mix really interesting. Cool, cool. So that's part of the Kickstarter as well uh, at certain levels. That's also yeah. part of the Kickstarter. So you, you can get like the whole, the whole bibliography practically through this. That's yeah. right. The whole catalog. That's awesome. That's awesome. Very cool. All right, good deal. We'll include links here for everybody who wants to check that out. Um, but otherwise, Stephen, thanks so much for taking the time. It was a, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It was a really, really fun conversation.